session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get into the books, and yes, books plural, because last week I was not here and Monday uh, had guests on my show. So I'll have a few books to talk about today, but I wanted to thank my guests from Monday night's show Ben and Sima Tubia, who shared their experience, Ben, um, as a Iranian-American male, uh, coming out as a gay man, and then dealing with what that was like first internally, and then sharing that, but then also the experience of the family, and Sima, as his mother, shared her own personal journey of dealing with that, and then eventually led to her creating a support group called We Do Care, in the Los Angeles area, and she mentioned they want to expand to other cities, maybe New York next, but it's a support group for parents of LGBTQ Iranian parents, so um, their children are members of the LGBTQ community and dealing with that, which oftentimes can be a struggle for any parents, but especially in the Iranian community, unfortunately, the stigma uh, is still very strong, and so it can be helpful to be with other parents and Get that support. So I want to thank them again for joining me Monday night. Um, so getting into the books, as I mentioned, I have a few books to talk about because I was not here last week, but also the book of the week for this week that I will talk about on uh, next or this coming Monday's show is Unthinkable by Helen Thompson. Unthinkable, an extraordinary journey through the world's strangest brains. Um, so looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. But so I'll be starting essentially with the book from two weeks ago, um, which is Emotional Advantage by Randy Tehran, Embracing All Your Feelings to Create a Life You Love. Uh, and I mention often that I judge a book by its cover or its title, and this was definitely the case here. Embracing All Your Feelings is something that I'm all about and try to promote on this show that we shouldn't just try to be happy or just think of the quote-unquote good feelings or the ones that feel good, but that all of our feelings are valuable and important and we need or we should try to embrace all of them in order to live a more full life. And so that um, thesis or that concept that is basically what the the book is based around, I really liked and so wanted to read this book. And so she goes through different emotions and talking about how they can be useful and also how we can deal with them better, um, starting with things like happiness, but also desire, fear, anxiety, and even ending with love. Um, And so she talks about happiness and a lot of times with any of these emotions, how we define them is very important. But happiness is one where a lot of times people will mistake a feeling of joy or even pleasure 
for happiness. So they think happiness means feeling good in the moment. So if I feel happy right now, if I'm enjoying what I'm doing, then I'm happy. Um, and that's one way of defining it. But there's another way that I think is more meaningful. And actually, it involves including meaning, meaning that we have a content feeling. We feel good about our life. We feel good about how we are living. We feel a more sustained feeling of happiness or contentment rather than that momentary feeling of joy uh, or pleasure. And so she talks about how we want to put meaning into our life and also how gratitude can be helpful for that as well. Um, and then she talks about sadness. And this is one that I think is so important because most people, when they think of the emotion of sadness, they think of it as a thing to get rid of, something to make go away as soon as possible, something that if we feel is bad and if we don't feel it, that's good. Um, and because of our judgment about sadness, unfortunately, that leads us to deal with it in hurtful or harmful ways. We think that if we feel sad, that means we have to get rid of it, whether that's taking drugs or alcohol or food to numb, um, distracting ourselves with someone or something, engaging in some other bad behavior, or somehow denying that feeling because we think the goal is just to get rid of it. But as the title of the book implies, we want to embrace all our feelings, including the ones that might not feel good, like sadness. And sadness is very important for us to recognize that it's telling us something. And so the analogy I like to use is like we have physical pain that tells us something is not right with the body, we have emotional pain as well that can tell us something. You know what? Something's not quite right, or I don't feel good about this. Also, we have to accept sadness as a part of life and a part of caring about things and caring about people. If you want to get close to anyone, you have to be ready to risk feeling sad at some point. Or if you want to care about the world, the world is going to make you sad. And oftentimes we avoid um, this feeling of sadness. Even I was talking to someone recently about how we might see someone who's homeless and sometimes we might not give them attention or acknowledge them, not because we actually don't care, but in a way we care too much. And this person I was talking to is a very caring person um, who has a lot of kindness uh, in her. And so it was interesting for her to see that she almost doesn't even acknowledge them at times. And many of us will do this at times. I know I do as well. But a lot of times it's actually because we care too much and that feeling of sadness or pain can feel too much to bear that we actually distance ourselves from it or try to avoid it to begin with. So our sadness is something actually very wonderful about us. And not only can it help us understand ourselves better, but we know that the more we are in touch with our own sadness, the better we are at having empathy and connecting with others. If I'm not connected to my own pain, it makes it almost impossible for me to really connect to yours and to be there for you and express empathy when you're experiencing sadness. So it helps us even connect deeper with others for multiple reasons. One is when we express our sadness, people know us better and they connect to us. But also if we're connected to our sadness and express it, we can connect to our partners or our friends' sadness as well. So as much as we might think of sadness as one of those bad feelings to get rid of, it definitely is not. And in this book, she does talk about the value of that. Uh, and even about things like fear. We think of fear as something bad, but of course fear is the body's or brain's way of telling us something is dangerous or not safe. And actually, we need it a lot of times. And also, it can tell us things that we might not be aware of if we don't listen to that feeling. So even a feeling like fear is important. I'm going to just touch on some of the other feelings that she talks about, um, because obviously there's not enough time to get into each one in detail. Um, but another one is anger that people 
oftentimes think of as a negative thing. And anger can be negative in the sense that a lot of times people use anger or their anger might drive them to act in a way that is very hurtful. Uh, they might become aggressive. They might say mean things. They might damage things. They can become violent. So there's ways that anger can get us into trouble or we think of it as a negative thing. But anger is our brain's way of telling us that something is not right in how someone is treating us. We feel wronged by someone. We feel that someone has done something that isn't fair to us. And we feel that anger, and that's important to be in touch with that, to recognize we feel like someone has violated our boundaries. Someone has done something we don't like. So it's good for us actually to listen to that feeling, to understand that feeling, and to express it. And that's the hard part, is that anger can be hard to express in the right way, uh, or in a good way, in a healthy way, and to the right person. Um, I think it's a quote by Aristotle, which is similar to what I'm saying, but being angry at the right person to the right degree and expressing it in the right way, that's the hard part. It's easy to get angry. And this is why people sometimes think, well, because it's so hard to know how to express it the right way or express it in a way that is good, they just put it away altogether. And they try to dismiss ever feeling angry or ever expressing it, or they might pride themselves in never being angry. But we want to be in touch with our anger and understand it and be aware that we should express it to those who are close to us so that they can understand us better and even know how they're hurting us and what we don't like. So anger, another emotion that we often think of as a bad thing. I've even had clients who come into therapy and say, yeah, I have anger. I want to get rid of it. I need to get rid of my anger. Um, and usually that's not going to be the goal. The goal is more about understanding the anger, integrating it, and learning maybe how to manage it in a better way if they're acting out on it in a way that doesn't feel good. But making anger disappear or eliminating it completely is not possible and also not uh, a goal or something we should want to have. We need to have that. Um, again, anger, like sadness, is telling us something is not quite right, and we want to be able to listen to that information that we're getting. Another interesting chapter for me was about guilt and shame. And I often hear people say guilt is such a waste of a feeling or it's so bad or why should we feel guilty about things? But first of all, if you didn't feel any guilt, um, that would be a problem. You would be possibly a psychopath who doesn't care about what you do and feels no guilt and remorse. It's one of the um, symptoms of antisocial personality disorder. So we need to have guilt. And guilt is telling us that we're acting in a way that is not in alignment with our values or who we are or who we want to be. We lie and we don't feel good about it. That's good. It's good to not feel good about lying because you realize I don't want to be someone who lies. I want to be honest and I want to act in that way. And so if we don't listen to that guilt, we might not recognize that we're acting in a way that doesn't feel right to us, that we're violating our own boundaries of who we want to be. So we want to be in touch with that feeling to say, oh, you know what? I don't feel good about what I did. And that could lead to us trying to make it right, first by potentially apologizing to whoever we might have harmed in what we did, um, trying to make amends for what we might have done, trying to fix that situation, and also thinking about it and how we want to act differently in the future, that we don't want to act in the way that made us feel guilty. That feeling is telling us something, and in a way makes us want to avoid feeling that way again. So we can learn from the guilt and so guilt is not a bad thing in and of itself. We want to try to understand it, see what it's telling us as we do with all the feelings, and then act accordingly. And even shame, um, the difference between guilt and shame will we'll sometimes say is that guilt is I did something wrong 
or I did something bad, and shame is I am bad. So it's more about who we are at the core. And shame is generally thought of as much more of a harmful or negative emotion and what we want to avoid. But the point that she made in the book was that she says shame guides us to be aware of the buried hurts so that we can bring them to the surface to heal. Because usually shame is reflecting something within us where we feel is bad, defective, unlovable. And so it's not good for us to feel that way. So I'm not saying we should feel ashamed or we should feel shame and that's good. But when we feel it, it's good to listen to it, to recognize there's some pain underneath that's a very deep wound that needs to get attended to. And so hopefully we can have that compassion towards ourselves to say, I'm feeling shame. I don't need to feel ashamed of who I am and who I am at my core. But if I'm feeling this way, something is not quite right. And I need to get in touch with that very deep pain to understand myself better. Um, so I've touched on some of the more negative ones, but she also covers things like confidence. And I think confidence is actually an interesting one because we sometimes think that because we want to come off as humble or expressing humility, we shouldn't be confident. And genuine confidence is different from fake pride or cockiness or being arrogant. Genuine confidence is having a belief in yourself, and that is something very good. And even it's good for us to have that confidence in ourselves to then do the good things that we can do for ourselves and for others and for the world, that we should believe in ourselves and use our strengths, our talents, our abilities, our skills to do good things. So it's actually good to have genuine confidence in yourself that is based on who you actually are and to believe in yourself and believe you can even be better and to strive for those things. Um, so in this book, it also ends with the feeling or emotion of love, and it talks about how, how we want to embrace all these feelings to become more who we actually are, to live a more authentic and real life. And I'm very much in favor of that uh, argument or that concept that we want to be more in touch with who we are and we live our fullest life when we express all of our feelings, even in our relationships. If you have a relationship and you don't express sadness or anger or pain because you think those are negative, you think those are not good and it's just going to hurt your relationship, you're actually just taking away from how close and emotionally intimate you and your partner can be. So in our relationships, we need to express these feelings to genuinely be close with one another, to hide them from our partners or to think we're doing them a favor by not sharing them, to keep them away from these negative feelings. We're actually harming them, hurting them, and hurting our relationship. So when it comes to living a full life and to having meaningful, deep relationships, we need all of, all of our feelings. And we have to keep in mind that all of our emotions are telling us something. And we want to hear that information to understand what it's telling us to understand ourselves better. And then we can use that information to act accordingly. And one last note about that. Sometimes when people think about getting in touch with their feelings, if they haven't been in touch with them, there can be this thought or feeling that, well, now that I'm in touch with them, I should express them fully however I want. And that's not what we're talking about. So it doesn't mean I'm angry so I can show my anger however I want. I can hurt whoever I want because I'm angry and I get to do that. But having that understanding that I feel angry, that distance, that it's not I am angry, I feel angry, and then trying to understand what's the best way to deal with it is different than just saying, because I feel something, I have the right to act in whatever I want because of that feeling. So we want to be in touch with our feelings, understand them, but then still 
have that aspect of emotional intelligence where we manage the feelings and express it in a way that is most beneficial to ourselves. But until we're in touch with them, we can't use that information. So that was Emotional Advantage, Embracing All Your Feelings to Create a Life You Love by Randy Tehran. And after the break, I'll be talking about The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone by Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernback. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. All right. So we did one book on to the next one, which is The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone by Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernback. And uh, I really enjoyed this book because um, I never heard of it quite put that way, The Knowledge Illusion, but I'd seen different research on this. But the concepts covered in this book were very um, interesting and new, or at least new takes of things I'd heard about, but made me think about a lot of things. And made me think about some things I already had thought about before. And I guess it's almost funny. I'm like expressing the knowledge illusion now saying I already knew what was in this book because I, I definitely did not. Um, but that's basically what the book is talking about, how a lot of times we think we know a lot more than we do, or we think we understand, for example, how something works or something in history or something in politics, when really we have very little idea about that. One of the first ways they brought this up is... Uh, studies that have shown, for example, when they ask people how basic things work. And usually they think they know. You say, how does a zipper work? Like, yeah, I know how a zipper works. How does a toilet work? Yeah, I know how a toilet works. But then you ask them to explain how these things work. And they had the example of the toilet. And people have really no idea to explain uh, how they actually work, the science or physics or whatever you want to call it, behind what's happening. They don't really know. And then when you ask them after that how well they know uh, a toilet works, they say much lower, which is good. They become aware of their own ignorance or that they have this knowledge illusion. Uh, but before that, we walk around having a lot of these illusions about what we know. And actually, when it comes to the toilet, um, they explain how it works, but I still cannot explain it to you exactly how it works. And there's lots of reasons for this. One of them, for example, with things like a zipper or a toilet is that we know how to use them. So I know, obviously, we all can use the the toilet, we all can use a zipper to zip something up. So we feel like we have that enough knowledge to use it, but it doesn't mean we actually understand it. And so we often have a misunderstanding or an illusion about how much we know, because when we interact with certain things, we feel like we can use it. Or I drove my car here. There's so many things in every aspect of it that I have no idea how they make it and the science behind it and what was done to make it and all the research done on that. But I know enough to drive the car to get the utility I need out of it. So in that way, it almost feels like I understand the car or I know it, even though really I'm completely ignorant to so much of what's going on. So there's that aspect. Another important one is that um, they talk about the community, I think community of knowledge, but it, which is essentially how we think we know a lot of things because we lose track of really what's in our own mind and what is out there. And especially now with the internet and, for example, Wikipedia or just doing a Google search, we can look up almost any fact or any piece of information. And because of that extension of ourselves, and it's, we literally can have it in our pockets as I have my phone right now and can look up anything, it, it's hard to make that distinction between what I know and what I don't know because I have access to all this information. So very often we m make a mistake here as well in thinking that because 
the knowledge is out there and I can access it in a way it means I know it. And so there's one aspect of this book which I liked, which was having a type of intellectual humility about ourselves. Of You know what? We think we know a lot more than we do. And a lot of people, if you ask them the things I'm saying, they might say, oh, no, I know people do this, but I don't do that. But we all do this. I do it as well. Everyone listening is doing that also. We think we know things that we don't. And the book gets into lots of the reasons why. For example, there was interesting research where they would have people read an article saying that scientists had discovered some glow-in-the-dark rocks or something that was glow-in-the-dark that would um, be able to show light in the dark. And in some versions of the article, it would say the scientists know why it glows or they understand it. And in other versions of it, they would say the scientists still don't understand what makes it glow in the dark. And when they asked people if they had read the article that had the scientists who said they understood how things glow in the dark, they themselves felt they understood it better too. Whereas when they were told that scientists don't understand it, they felt that they understood it less which shows that it's as if because that knowledge is out there, again, we lose track of where our own understanding ends and others begins, we think we know something that we in fact don't know. So that I thought was an interesting article uh, and research study that illustrated how we think we know more than we do, where we lose track of what we know and what we know don't know. Um, and this extends to lots of things. Even uh, they had an interesting chapter looking at heroes or the way we think of, for example, Martin Luther King as the sole leader of the civil rights movement. And of course, he was instrumental and played such a big part, but he was one part of it. And he did a lot to mobilize people. And actually, that's one of the things he did that was great amongst other people is that he was able to get lots of people to do something. So it wasn't he alone did something, but he had a big impact. And even in scientific discoveries, they talk about it in the book. We often think of Einstein created the theory of relativity. And this person developed this and uh, Darwin created the theory of evolution and natural selection. But it usually is not so simple. Many more people contributed or many other people might have been thinking about the same things. Was it Herbert Spencer that was also um, thinking of natural selection around the same time as Darwin? I can't remember if that's his name. But anyway, we see that a lot of people might be thinking of the same things at the same time or there was contributions made by others or people build on theories that were made on other people's theories were made on other people's theories. And so we tend to think and we like to have this narrative of the one person hero, whether it's in politics or in science or whatever it might be. And we attribute them to everything. So Gandhi is the reason why India became free and we just know him. And that's the shorthand of how we remember it when it's really much more complex than that. But we think we know a lot more than we do because there's also ways we like to think about things. So again, it's having that intellectual humility of, I think I understand, or I think I know that Pearl Harbor was a complete surprise attack. And they talk about some of the history that shows it was not as much of a surprise as many people think it was, or the way we remember it to be. But it's having that intellectual humility that, you know what, I don't know as much as I think I do. Or even if I think I understand something because I've heard others say it, it doesn't mean it's necessarily true. And this also extends to things like politics. And we have to recognize that the reason why we usually think or really feel a certain way about different political issues is not about the specifics of the policy or even that we know the results, because obviously usually we don't, but we have different biases or values that can affect this. Uh, the book by Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, 
talks a lot about this in detail, that, for example, you have a bias towards abortion, you already feel a certain way, either pro-choice or pro-life, and that's going to affect how you view any legislation related to abortion. It's not that really you're looking at the policy in detail and saying, this is why I agree with it. It's that you already feel that abortion is wrong and should it be done, or that a woman should have the right to choose, and that's going to have a effect and is going to essentially determine what you think of the new policy. And so again, having that intellectual humility, I think I know that if they do this to the taxes, it's going to have this result. But most of us don't know. First of all, even the most expert ec economists might not know exactly what's going to happen. They might make some predictions, but most of us really have no clue what's going to happen. But we don't want to say that. We don't like saying that. And we think we're supposed to know and have an complete understanding and show that we understand it, but we don't. If you say taxes will be raised 2%, what's the effect? Most people will tell you they think they know what's going to happen, but it again has to do more with their biases or the ways they feel. Maybe they're against raising taxes or maybe they're for raising taxes or think that's okay, and that's going to affect what they think rather than knowing how the policy will actually end. Um, so I thought that was important to make that point. And so when we're having a lot of political debates, we think we're talking about facts, but really we're talking about feelings. I don't like for some people not to have health care, so I want everyone to have it. So if you have a discussion, I'm going to show or think I'm showing how it's the right thing to do, even though it's not that I know how the policy is going to play out, but that value is important to me. And I have to be aware of my own biases, the way I feel and think about things, and recognize that the debate is much more about that than the actual facts. Uh, they also had a chapter on intelligence, which I thought was interesting, or being smart. And usually we think of smart or being smart as someone who can think well, intelligence as an individual thing. But they were talking about how um, it's more about a collective thing. How does someone work in a group? And that's more important than just one individual's intellectual horsepower. It's not going to be as meaningful as how they work within a group and most things are done in groups. It was related to that idea of um, scientists thinking of things alone and being the sole reason why a discovery was made or some advancement was made. And most things are done in teams now and actually always have been, and we're moving even more in that direction. So they were arguing that, or at least making the point that we should think of intelligence less about this individual thing of how well you can, for example, your processing speed or how many numbers you can hold in your working memory and more about how people work with others because that's really the measure of success and the measure of what we need and the measure of what actually helps the world is people who can work well with others in that way. Um, so I found those topics also very interesting. The politics also about science. We think we understand things in science all the time. I mentioned that glow-in-the-dark article, but we think we know, but we really don't know how a lot of things work. And even he mentioned something, uh, the authors, I should say, mentioned something in the book about how it does take some faith when it comes to science, because when it comes to some new research, we don't know much about it. Or if there is a consensus among scientists, we have some faith in what they're telling us. We haven't looked at all the research ourselves. We haven't been a part of any of that research. But we have some belief in the or faith in the scientific community and the way they work and do things that makes us feel that if enough experts feel a certain way, that is at least the current understanding and we take that to be our current truth, not capital T, but the current truth of how we think about something or what science is telling us. But really, we don't know. So really, that's a key message in this book is, you know what? You don't know as much as you think you do. 
You think you understand a lot more than you do. You think you know a lot more than you do. And the good news is that's okay. We don't need to know things. And actually the human brain, rather than it being a, a place that's good for just memorizing facts and things, which unfortunately is how we usually teach our children, thinking that's the right way, but it's more learning how to interact with the world, which is even better than knowing things. And especially in today's day and age where we are um, have more access to information than ever before and you could have it at your fingertips, so really that knowledge of knowing things is less important than it used to be, even more we're moving to an uh, age where it's important to think or be able to interact with the world. So when you're engaging with the world, rather than needing to know everything, you need to know how to interact, what information to get, what questions to ask, where to get the answers to those questions, rather than just knowing a set of facts. And so thankfully some, um, you know, movement is being made in education towards teaching our children in this way teaching them first of all to work in groups because that's going to be important but also teaching them how to think about things rather than just how to memorize things because that's a more important uh, skill to have but we still have a ways to go because we think that education is about filling someone's head with knowledge and information rather than teaching them how to think about things uh, so i really was uh, fascinated by this book the knowledge illusion because it was covering some very important topics about thinking about how we think, thinking about what we know and what we don't actually know, and having that intellectual humility to know that we don't know that much, but that's okay, because no one needs to know everything, even about a certain topic, and no one does, but we need to know how to interact with others, how to get that information, and we sometimes forget where our own knowledge ends and others begins, because it could be such a thin line, or we sometimes can just access it when we want. Uh, but there's many concepts in this book that I think people will find interesting. So that was The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, by Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernback. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Um, hi. Um, I have a question about my uh, nephew. Okay. Um, so he's 27 years old. Uh, he's successful. He's a dentist. But he has problems uh, about having relationships. So he's good at the first steps. And I'm asking these questions just because He's close to me, but he does not uh, like to um, listen to radios or he reads books, but um, when it comes to acting right, um, he has lack of it. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you can help me somehow to, you know, uh, give some information to my sister or... Even I talked to him about how to uh, getting better to start a relationship, keep it. And actually, um, all the problems is kind of re uh, related to the first book that you talked about. So mm -hmm. usually he starts the relationship pretty well. And uh, he gives too much. And uh, all of a sudden, when 
um, he is not as attractive for the other person. Um, he gets angry and he says, I'm not going to do anything for that person. And he gets kind of depressed mm-hmm. and um, he even even gets depressed to the point that he doesn't talk well with other people around the house who love him. And uh, we're trying just to find the right way to, you know, guide him to be on the right route. Okay. So, you know, just to begin with, I wanted to stop you earlier, but I wanted to let you finish also. Um, The conversation we're going to have is how to help someone else who we're not talking to. And so we have to understand the limits of that. And um, I say that also the limits of our own conversation, but for you to have that mindset of when you're talking to him or trying to help him, that to try to fix this or solve this for him uh, is not possible and might make you put more pressure on him or actually make things worse. So we have to have that approach of maybe we can help him Maybe we can talk to him if he wants. And even that, we have to be aware of how we talk to him. We'll make it more or less likely he'll want to talk to us. But that we're not going to fix this for him or solve this for him. um, And it's going to be for him to figure out, ultimately. And so we we don't want to... We can't fix this for him. Um, But going to what you're saying, it seems like you feel he's not in touch with all of his feelings. And Mm -hmm. so that leads to these issues. And it does seem to be some of that. Uh, from what you are describing, that he's giving too much, which means there's something there. I mean, of course, you're making some assumptions that he's giving too much, but it could be he's giving too much because he doesn't think he's enough or he thinks he needs to be this way or whatever it might be. But there's something not very genuine about it because when it doesn't get responded to well, you sense that he switches to anger and gets mad at that person and then gets depressed and angry. And we know actually sometimes we think of anger and depression as different, and they are different, but very often when someone is depressed, we see more anger from them, especially in teenagers and kids. They're more likely to show anger than even sadness sometimes when they're depressed. Um, But so you see him respond in these ways, and it it can be hurtful. And and keep in mind, he's 27, so we want to be patient with him as well. Um, But there does seem to be some blocks there. And so even in what you said, how do we guide him? And I, I can get that, and there could be ultimately that's what we want to do. More important for exactly. me than guiding him is understanding him. And mm-hmm. that's more, rather than trying, that's why I want the, the focus to be less about fixing him or fixing the issue, and more in understanding him and what's going on. And you as his aunt might not be the person for that. He might not want to open up to you much anyway. He might not want to open up to his parents and maybe he doesn't want to see a therapist. You're saying he's not someone who likes to listen to things like radio, and it's not for everyone to listen to my show or shows like this. Um, so there's other ways, but he, maybe therapy would be beneficial to him, so I hope he would be open to that. But my suggestion would be first for you and, and people around him, rather than focusing on fixing, to be focused on understanding. May I interrupt you? Of course, right I was done. Go ahead. Yeah, um, maybe it came out wrong, so I'm not trying to find a way to fix him. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to find a way how to guide him better, just because he talks to me, I, I think, um, like I'm one of the closest people to him. So he mm-hmm. doesn't talk too much to his mom, okay. and he has some angers towards her. I, I think it's mostly just because she's, too much giving and a little bit 
in a controlling side. And, you know, at 27, you know it all and you want to make your own decisions. So he doesn't share as much uh, with her since she wants to have ideas towards his decisions in life. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I think affects um, him is because he has a really successful dad mm-hmm. and kind of he look out to him and he wants to be like him exactly but um, you know at 27 many people make mistakes and it kind of bothers him and he doesn't admit when he makes mistakes so mistakes after mistakes I, I think it's hurting his confidence. Like what kind of mistakes? Like, um, let's say mistakes in find, finding a job in a right state. Um, having, not making the same uh, choices when you went for one choice to finding a you know, soulmate or girlfriend. Um, so he, he does... Similar mistakes, but, you know, when I talk to him, I try to open it up for him and say, write it down on a paper, what it was in your previous girlfriend that you didn't like, and uh, what did you do, what was your part, um, and, you know, it kind of helped him does he want? Yeah, but does he want to do that? Yes. Okay. Yes. So he's open to that, mm-hmm. but when it comes to that emotional, you know, moment that he's breaking up or he doesn't get what he want to get, so basically he goes back, he listens in the beginning, and it's successful. And then when he goes deep into the relationship, um, usually he cannot continue the relationship just because he kind of wants to um, continue it like like in the beginning of the relationship. So many calls, many talking on the phones, and such a thing that, you know, nowadays I don't think girls does, uh, do appreciate kind of thing. Another problem that I think he has is a difference of the culture. So he... Uh, he was here since he was 12 years old, so he has that simplicity of mind and straightforward kind of talking mm-hmm. towards the girls. And then when he goes with a girl who's from Iran, um, the girl knows much more better, lies much more often, so he cannot go with that kind of girl. But when he goes with a girl who is... Um, a little bit more straightforward. He cannot compete with that girl. Okay. Well, so, yeah, maybe he's facing some challenges being in between two cultures, which many people who are bicultural, either the children of immigrants or immigrants themselves will face. In in hearing you talk about him, it's like you're saying he's making these mistakes in a way as if, like, he should be getting it right or he's doing something wrong. And it's not so clear he's doing something wrong, but be aware of how you talk to him if you make him feel like he's making mistakes or he's doing something bad. Because there's a way you're saying it like he should be able to figure this out rather than, you know, it's really hard to be from two cultures and trying to understand 
what's going on. So I just want you to be aware of the mindset if you're expressing that in a compassionate way yeah. to him rather than he mm -hmm. should figure this out. Yeah, actually, you know what? I, I usually, like most of the time, I was listening to Dr. Holakui and then um, your program came and you talk about the same things that he had, you know, challenges with. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe if I call and ask some questions, I can guide him much better. I, I believe that the best way is to let him to figure it out, you know, fall down and get up back. Mm -hmm. But um, at the same time, I do really care that he doesn't go the route that he thinks it's something wrong with him. Yes. And so that's why it's so important for you to make sure you don't give him that feeling. So that's why okay. I'm talking about understanding rather than I have to guide him to somewhere. Because that's what I was saying. When you say you're guiding, it means like you're doing bad or wrong. And I'm mm -hmm. not saying he can't improve. And it does seem like there's some definitely some issues here. But it's making sure you're not. And that's why I, I don't want your folks to be fixing him. It's more of understanding. Because mm -hmm. when you give him the feeling of fixing, you're telling him something is wrong or bad about him rather than you're trying to understand him. Oh, you got really sad from this breakup. And that's all. You, you don't need to figure out what he has to learn and what he has to do differently next time. But I could see how you got frustrated that she, you know, stopped reciprocating the way she was before or you felt like she took you for granted or whatever it is. And first connect, and then maybe there'll be chances to, to go a little deeper with him. But we have to connect first. And so I would, that's why I felt from you, and even in calling me, of course, uh, you care a lot. Um, but it might also be that you want to fix it. And that fixing part could actually get in the way of your relationship with him, which fortunately seems like you, he has a very good relationship with you. He likes to talk to you. He opens up to you. Yeah, and that's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I don't give him advice, you know, as often. And mm -hmm. I don't get worried as much as my sister gets. Mm -hmm. But I thought maybe, maybe, you know, like what you said right now, I, I think it's a really, really good suggestion that I can uh, pass it to my sister as well to make the connection and understand. Because, you know, in our culture, some, some things are based wrong. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to change that. Yeah. And, uh, try to um, understand. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think most parents and Persian parents, probably even more, they think their job is to fix and manage their kid's life, you know? So the kid is struggling in school and of course we pay attention to it. We might have to help them in getting tutors and things like that. But first should always be about understanding what's going on rather than just fixing. Oh, you got to see, we have to get a tutor tomorrow. It's like, okay, let's understand what's happening. What did the student do? What is your child going through? what's going on, you know? So it's always first about understanding. And then sometimes we put this pressure, for example, for getting married and he still is young, but that, okay, because we don't want him to waste time or go the wrong way, we have to hurry up and fix this. So we don't have time to waste and he's going to lose opportunities. And so that could put even more of a pressure, which then is probably going to hurt him and hurt the relationships even more than actually helping him and getting you closer to him. So, and another thing you mentioned, there was a, a same phrase you used for both of them of doing too much. So maybe him and his mom have some similarities in that sense that actually might cause trouble. Um, and maybe even he learned that from her, saw how she was with people and he is that way with people. So there's a lot of things to look at. But as I was saying, the focus on understanding is important. And you might have a point that it seems he's not really, as most of us are, not aware of 
what's driving our behavior, especially when it comes to romantic relationships. So we continue to do the same things. We have the same patterns that we create because we're in this autopilot or unaware of what is causing us to act a certain way. So I would hope for him, as everyone needs this work, to become more self-aware and understanding what's happened to them and what they've experienced and how it's going to affect how they are in relationships. But until he's willing to really look in, you can't force him to. But the more you connect with him, and if he has those conversations where he feels like you understand him, then you're more likely that he will even go in that direction of, okay, I feel understood. You know, I feel like my aunt gets me. And then maybe you can go deeper with him, but it's not until he's ready to go there. And there could be some other blocks of how he feels about himself, as you were saying, and how successful he wants to be. If he has a hard time acknowledging mistakes, there could be a perfectionism or a feeling that if he's not good enough, he won't be loved. And that could be coming from the family too, something going on. So there's a lot happening. But as I mentioned at the start, uh, being aware that your role is just as some type of support, that you're not there to fix it and you can't fix it and you can just be there for him and have a good relationship with him and hopefully help but until he wants to get help nothing will change okay thank you so much sure. doctor my pleasure nice talking you have a great day you too bye. okay bye-bye all right we've reached another commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, hi. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Sure. Um, Dr. Halakwi, um, I actually had a question about um, the way that I'm having problem concentrating. Uh-huh. And um, I feel like when I'm trying to study or even to listen to somebody, my my brain just flies somewhere and it starts thinking whatever it wants to think and I just lose track of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, tell me, how old are you? I'm 32. 32? Okay. Yes. And have you been having issues with concentration your whole life or is this something more recent? Um, well, so a little bit about me is mm-hmm. that when I was really young... I remember that my mom was constantly writing messages to the teacher saying that she doesn't pay attention, she misses a question by mistake, and I feel like she kind of had this character that put additional stress on me that I couldn't be relaxed all the time. Hmm. But um, I was okay, I got better and better, but right now I feel like um, even when I'm trying to study, I know my capabilities and how I can focus on different things. Mm-hmm. But right now, it feels like it's been a constant struggle to, you know, pay attention to one page of, like, PowerPoint, a slide like that. And it's kind of frustrating for me because I know my brain flies, but then I have a hard time figuring out when it starts flying. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. the right phrase to use. <laughs> well, yeah, fly, I mean, you're um, saying flies. I get, I get what you're saying. It jumps around or doesn't stay focused <laughs> on what you're trying to focus on. Um, yeah. And the reason why I asked you about childhood is that usually ADHD is going to show up from a young age. So 
sometimes it's not diagnosed, so someone might not recognize it till later, but almost always, unless it's due to some kind of brain injury or something else, we're going to see it from a very young age. So we'll see it in school. So your mom, you're saying she put this pressure on you and there might be more to it than just about those letters she wrote, I'm sure, uh, or talks she had with the teachers. But um, maybe that's a sign that you did have something from a young age and that's worth looking at. Did you ever get tested for or diagnosed with ADHD? Not really. I had a, I had always a really successful education, and um, that wasn't something that was stopping me from really being worried about it. But it's been recently, and I don't know if it's because of the stress level that I'm facing at school, or um, it's something else that is triggering it. Because I studied a whole different thing. My education was in Iran. I came here, got my master's. Worked for a couple of years, but then I completely changed the gears and went for a completely different major. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you remember or not. I'm pretty sure you don't. But I called you last year, too, that I have this feeling that with very little noise or with little things that move around me, I just jump and I get scared really bad. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so this thing happened last year, but now that I started this whole new major and during studying, it's just like so frustrating. And one thing that really made me to think that this is probably going to be an important thing is that the other day I was driving and I was backing up and I didn't even notice when I put the call on reverse and went backwards instead of going forward. All of a sudden I just hit the brake and I was like, where was I? Hmm. You know, a lot of what you're talking about there seems to relate to anxiety. And the thing with concentration or attention is usually we hear attention and we think, well, ADHD has the word attention in it, so that's what we have. But we know that depression and anxiety, of course, medical concerns as well, but as far as psychological issues, depression and anxiety can also lead to issues with focus and concentration. And what you seem to be describing also, you're saying you get startled easily. I don't remember some things I'm remembering. You said you called about a year ago, but that you would get startled easily from a sound and you get scared. Um, that is usually related to anxiety or being what you can call vigilant or hypervigilant. And let me ask you a, a separate question before I come back to this. Have you experienced any traumas? And the reason why I'm asking that is that PTSD can lead to symptoms like hypervigilance. But are there any traumas you've experienced recently or in the past that you can think of that might lead to you feeling some of these symptoms? Uh, I'm not exactly sure if it was trauma, but I had a lot of falls and rises in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, the major thing that I can think of at a really early age was my, my brother that um, he's like two years older than me. And he, he went through a heart surgery and then he became handicapped after that. Mm. So the whole... My life sort of changed based upon what I hear from my parents that they weren't with me so much and I was spending time with other relatives, but they always tried to make sure they're paying attention to me at the same time. Um, I don't know if that's considered a trauma, but... Um, well, yeah, there's different ways of looking at trauma. Sometimes we think of trauma as one, usually like a, an event or something that happens that made us feel in danger or that we were in a serious threat. Um, this is sounds like more of like a relational trauma that had a big effect on, I'm sure, you seeing your brother that way, but then also because of the stress it had on the whole family that affected how everyone was and how much you got attention and 
and how your parents were feeling, I'm sure, and a lot. So I'm sure that had a huge effect on you. So um, that's different from usually what we think of as a trauma that leads to PTSD, but it does seem like a relational trauma that I, I can imagine contributed to feelings of anxiety amongst other things that seem to be related to what you're you're talking about. Because when you say you get startled easily, like you hear a sound, that can be in a way like an overreactive fear response, which can be related to anxiety. And I'm feeling that from you and talking to you also that there is some anxiety. So my thinking is that it's it seems to be more anxiety than um, ADHD itself. And unfortunately, anxiety can make us have a very hard time concentrating because we're thinking about things, we're worrying about things, so we go away from the moment that we are in. Or even you talked about when you're talking to someone, um, it could be anxiety in general, but a, a type of social anxiety makes it so that people have a very hard time talking to people and remembering things. So a lot of people will say, um, I never remember people's names when I meet them. And it's less about remembering their names, but that actually they didn't have the focused attention when they met the person to hear their name because of the anxiety. They were thinking about what they were going to say. They were thinking about how they looked in that moment, or they just felt anxious overall. And so because of that, the name really didn't even register. So uh, anxiety can lead to issues related to attention and focus and concentration. And it seems like a lot of what you're talking about might be more related to anxiety than, let's say, specifically ADHD. But there could be that too, since in childhood you also had some of these types of symptoms. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, right now, um, what is your suggestion to do? I mean, I exercise. I try to, you know, kind of relax at certain times in the day. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel the stress level at school is too much that I'm not going to have so much time to do other activities to just distract myself and calm down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your recommendation for me to do? And even if it's a book that you would think would help me, because I have a couple more weeks of to start, mm-hmm. um, I would love to read that to learn a little bit. I know the book wouldn't solve all my problems, but if it helps a little sure. bit still, if I can get this under control, because... I know that my friends tell me when I go in my room and I start studying and I come out, I look so pale mm. and uh, just like physically not normal yeah. and I'm under stress. And that, I mean, that's telling us that it's, it's physically taking a toll on you and your stress level being so high is going to be tough. There's things you can try to do. Um, so let me just give you a few suggestions. There's always the general one that I'm I give to most people dealing with anything because I think it's a good idea, which is to go to therapy, to talk about these things. Because I, I, even when you talked about the, the what happened to your brother and that experience, there seems like there's a lot there that is is still affecting you. The, what you went through with him and the family, that of course is going to have an impact. And we know that in general for things like anxiety, medication can be helpful. And I'm not a psychiatrist to tell you to take any medication or not take any medication. But usually when someone has anxiety, even though that would make us think they should take an anti-anxiety medication, usually for long-term use, we take antidepressants or antidepressants are prescribed for anxiety issues and they can be very helpful. Anti-anxiety medication is more for in the moment type of a thing. So antidepressants are more prescribed. So that's just something to keep in mind. And it's possible you could benefit from that if it seems that the anxiety is so much 
and it's not something that you can get more into a manageable level. Um, but in therapy, you might get a better understanding of what's going on and just having that space to talk can be helpful. Meditation can also be helpful in helping us calm down. Um, you know, you were saying that you startle easily, like you hear a sound and you have a reaction. Some research can show that when people meditate, that the emotional parts of the brain or parts like the amygdala in the brain can become less active, which can lead to, a, which in a way might translate to feeling of being more calm. So that's also something that can be helpful. And meditation, it's kind of like exercise. So it's not that if you just do it once or twice, you're going to get some results. But if you are consistent, and especially if you can make it a daily practice of even at least 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day, that can have a huge impact in, as well in over time making you feel a bit more calm. Okay. As far as books go, I, nothing comes to my mind. I'm sure there are so many, but I don't know exactly what would be directly related to what you're talking about or dealing with. Um, but I, I really think the therapy would be helpful. And maybe you've already gone. Have you ever tried therapy before? Um, I tried for a couple of sessions, which I know that's not enough to make mm -hmm. a decision that it's yeah. working or not. Um, but I don't know. Um, I feel like I have other people that I can talk to. Not that if it's just about like expressing yourself and like that. Um, I felt I'm more comfortable talking to a close person or a close friend about it rather than going to sessions like that. So okay. if you recommend, I would definitely do that. Yeah, you know, so we could talk about that a little bit. And it's good to have friends and family we can talk to. And, and that's a different type of support than what you'll get in therapy. Some ways it can even be better or different, I should say, because there's way they can know you and connect to you that you can't get in therapy. But therapy is a very different process that can help you by having someone who is a professional and who is not connected to you in any way can give you a different type of guidance and that relationship can be helpful. Um, and, you know, seeing a therapist, at first they are a stranger to you and you have to have some level of basic trust, but it doesn't mean you're going to have to share everything with them as soon as you start. And so be ready to take some time, even, um, you know, sometimes I think people, well, I'm going to therapy, I should start working on things immediately. Well, just getting to know the therapist and getting comfortable is part of the process. Just like if you're going into surgery, they don't just start cutting you up, they have to prepare you and give you some anesthesia and other things to get you ready to go. And then they get into the deeper work of doing the surgery. Therapy can be the same way. Um, so yeah, when you tell me you went two, three times to me, it's as if you were just doing the anesthesia part, but you even weren't even doing the surgery part yet, you know? So, um, but I, I think there seems to be something about trust there in the way you talked about, um, telling a therapist about what's going on. Is it hard for you to trust and then connect and open up with a therapist? I barely open up with anyone. Yeah. Um, well then I feel, I feel I very lucky. I feel very lucky that you've called me and opened up um, at least a bit, but maybe even being on the phone and the distance there might make it a little bit easier as well. But I still am, I feel lucky that you're talking to me. Um, but that's so you're saying that is hard for you to trust and to open up. True. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's and that's what makes it hard. I can get that. It's that it's like exactly what we are saying to do is something that's hard for you to do. So it's like, go to therapy to work on this trust issue, but it takes some issue of trusting to even go to therapy. And that's what makes it hard. You know, I can get that that makes it challenging. And so I will 
encourage you to take that step and that when you go to therapy, you don't have to open up at a speed that doesn't feel good to you or rush into things. Um, and most therapists won't make you feel that way, that you need to hurry up and start telling them all the big stuff because we have to build that trust. And for you, if that's an issue, even you can let them know if you hope will feel comfortable telling them that you know that it's hard for you to feel comfortable to open up. And that will give the therapist an idea of how to approach that and to be more patient with you and to recognize that, okay, it's going to take her a bit more time. And that actually could mean that if you go to therapy and, you know, a lot of times we think therapy is about some techniques and, and there is that, but more what we find to be healing in therapy is the relationship that's created between the therapist and the client. And for you, that would be especially true because if you're able to build a safe, trusting relationship with a therapist that responds in a way that makes you feel understood and cared for, that could have a very deep impact in how you feel about trust. And even some of your anxiety could be related to this feeling of uneasiness that you can't feel safe with yourself or with other people. So I would really consider going to therapy and to consider the process. Don't just go five, 10 times, go for several months to at least a year. And of course, you have to find a therapist you feel good with at first and comfortable, knowing that you probably won't feel so comfortable with anyone at first, but someone you feel better with, and then get into that process. And I think it could have a very meaningful impact on you, but only if you do it for a long period of time. I understand. Um, I'll just add this in if that'll give you a little bit more idea about sure. me. That um, recently I've been thinking that everybody around me is going to die soon mm. and I'm going to be this person by myself and I'm constantly worried, okay, I have to go see my mom because I don't know how many more years she's going to be alive or I have to call my dad and all that. And um, it, I mm. know it's some sort of like a big thought and it's I shouldn't be living like that, but it's constantly bothering me. Hmm. Well, you know, I know you said I shouldn't be living like that, and I can understand that thought, but I would want you to first approach it as trying to understand it rather than judging what you're doing or feeling, because it does sound like it's very tough to feel that way. And, of course, this is also related to anxiety. Almost it sounds like an existential anxiety or this fear of, of death or loss of people. And even this could be related to your brother and what you saw there uh, but it's affecting you that it's hard for you to sit calm with what you're doing and the more you're talking the more the anxiety seems to be a big driving force in your life that makes everything a, a bit more challenging and we're never going to get rid of all your anxiety we don't want to do that to make it zero but we do want to make it much more manageable because the way it is right now rather than anxiety being something that at a small uh, level can be helpful it's really hurting you and so, you know, there's a lot you're going through that, as I mentioned before about the therapy, now even more strongly, I think it will be helpful for you to understand where is this existential feeling coming from or this fear of losing them. And as you said, yes, you know, you shouldn't live life that way. You can't live your life wanting to just make sure you see your mom or dad enough times or thinking you're going to lose them every moment. And because of that, you won't even live your own life. Of course, people will sometimes say, tell the people you love that you love them and spend time with them, of course, but we have to have a balance of living our own life as well. So it seems to me that the anxiety is the overwhelming issue that you're dealing with that is going to um, continue to affect you in various ways. It'll make the stress even more stressful. It'll make you 
harder for you to study. And then when it's hard to study, you'll have more stress. And it just, I could see you being in this very negative cycle that is that putting you under more and more pressure and stress. And so you're going to have to do some bigger things to try to change it. I would suggest the therapy and the meditation is two ways. I'm glad you exercise that can also be helpful, but hopefully the therapy as a process will help you deal with this. And even with a therapist, they can help you understand maybe there is some ADHD as well and medication can be beneficial. I'm getting the sense that the anxiety is the biggest part, but I would recommend as soon as you can to, to go see a therapist, even while you're still on break, it can be easier to start that process because once you start school, you might tell yourself you don't have time or it's going to be too hard to find someone. So while you're still on break, I'd say find someone. And even while you're in school, continue going. Make sure you make the time for that. And hopefully that will be helpful. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. So nice to talk to you. Good luck. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. We've reached another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. back you know we had a caller um during the break they said they wanted me to mention the book or the name of the book but i talked about three different books right gave two summaries and announced one so just for that caller so the first book i talked about today was emotional advantage embracing all your feelings to create a life you love by randy Turan. and then i did a summary on the knowledge illusion why we never think alone by stephen sloman and philip fernback and then the book of the week for this week is unthinkable an Extraordinary Journey Through the World's Strangest Brains by Helen Thompson. Hope that helps. Okay, let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, wonderful. Hi, um, this is Shadi. Um, I spoke with you in the past, and I'm just going to give a very a recap about um, what happened and everything. Okay. Um, you spoke about my breakup in the past. Um, it's been eight months um, since I broke with a guy I was dating in Los Angeles when I arrived in Los Angeles and I moved here. Um, he was an Iranian guy. Obviously, we had ups and downs with you, him controlling me a lot, you know, regarding my actions, the way I spoke, the way I dress up, and so forth. In any kind of matter, and um, so he suddenly disappeared on me um, without talking to me about, you know, wanting to break up. So I had to find out through social medias and through texting, and it was very hard for me to really get over the fact it happened. Okay. So I started um, doing self-copy because I wasn't able to really afford um, going to copy a real topic where I can talk with and everything. But I did find um, some self-coaching um, places, a self-coach, uh, where she was able to help me very much. I bought her book. Um, I've done these challenges uh, for 14 days, and I've been, you know, working on my limiting beliefs and how I can re get rid of them and how I can turn them around and make it a positive belief mm -hmm. uh, for myself. And so far, it's been helping me a lot, and I feel like I'm getting so much better. And I also read your book, the book that you recommended me. <laughs> oh, I don't remember what those were. What books were they? Do you remember? Uh, let me look. That's okay. That. That's not that's not significant. Oh, yeah, no, that's. I thought you knew them. Go ahead. So, uh, yeah, keep going. So, you, the breakup with eight was eight months ago. How long was the relationship? So we've been in a relationship for six months. Um, okay. But I feel like we didn't give each other enough time to really date and get to know each other first before even deciding to get into the relationship. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that really hurt me, and after a while, I just heard um, an ex-boyfriend of mine, not this guy that I used to date, a guy that was with for four years. 
he just recently got married, so I've been seeing, you know, posts on him on Facebook, and I finally decided to just let go and not be friends with him anymore. Uh-huh. And just, you know, close that door, basically. <laughs> that makes sense, okay. And then I had uh, family members, you know, cousins of mine who are close to my age also got married, and they're having a very happy marriage. And uh, recently I've been trying to get rid of this comfortness, meaning I, I don't want to compare myself a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, like, keep comparing myself, saying, oh, I don't have husbands, oh, I'm 30 years old, I should also have the same thing for me. So I'm going through a lot of hardship at the moment. I feel like part of the problem is that since I have so much emotion and hardship, I talk a lot. And I've been in... Um, you what? A, sorry. I, you, yeah. you said you what a lot? I missed what you said. I shop. Shop, um, okay. Been, yeah, I've been using my credit card to shop a lot yeah. um, to make myself feel better about myself and not worry too much about mm-hmm. my feelings and everything. So it's hard for me to really, um, you know, like talk with my feelings. Yeah. Or get used to my feelings and face them, basically. So to me, I thought, okay, just shopping maybe makes it easier for me to forget about my feelings and the anxiety I'm dealing with at times. Well, that's so the... Now, yeah, yeah, well, that's the thing with any... Anything we do to cope with our feelings that's like a drug or alcohol or shopping or gambling, it, it's to distract us and to make us feel good. And usually what we're looking at is that we're not tolerating the negative feelings and we're trying to get rid of them or get away from them. As you were saying, maybe you feel like you get too sad or too anxious and you try to get away from those feelings. But then, as is the case with any kind of compulsive behavior, we act out in a way that might feel good momentarily, but the feelings come back and now we have a problem to deal with in your case maybe credit card debt or other things that you might feel related to the debt um and that is going to make things worse so there does seem to be a way that you're running away from the feelings or you're trying to escape them maybe because they feel like they're too much or it's hard for you to tolerate them um and maybe in being in this relationship the way you described jumping into it might have been that you just wanted to, I think you said it was shortly after you moved, so it might have been that you wanted to just not feel alone, and so you decided to be with someone, and then it doesn't even seem like it was a good relationship because you described them as being very controlling, um, which we can talk about if that's related to anything from your past, but that you just, I get the sense it was more about not being alone than really wanting to be with this person. Yeah, part of it is that, like, um, I know right now, for example, I I have already stopped, like, using my credit cards, so Mm -hmm. I'm putting them away. It's been a month now that I stopped shopping with them. Okay. I'm trying to, like, get my debts and, you know, pay them off and become more financially stable Mm -hmm. and try not to, you know, use them because I'm feeling alone or I'm feeling, you know, um, that, I don't know, I I feel happy the other way around. I'm trying to meditate. I'm trying to start working out and create my emotion with those kind of things. And the last color you were spoken with, I kind of could relate. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone, I learned so many things when I was uh, waiting for the, for me to speak <laughs> with you. Um, but, yeah, I feel super lonely at times. I feel like, you know, my happiness sometimes depends on having a guy or being married and having someone to understand me as opposite sex. I don't know why that is. I really do not like it, though. I really want to be happy on my own and try yeah. to understand myself. Right, and so that's what we want to... We want to try to understand that part, what's that feeling. You Something you mentioned before about the comparison. Unfortunately, we can talk about comparison culture. Unfortunately, our... Persian culture is a comparison <laughs> culture, but they're also talking more about with social media that we're moving towards a comparison culture because it becomes so easy to compare ourselves to other people. And you mentioned that seeing 
even your cousins who are married and they're happy can be hard for you because you want that so much. And I think you're right that it's going to be important for you to understand what you're going through and then to get to a point where you can feel okay on your own. And then you might want to be with someone, but not that you feel a need to be with someone because you feel bad being alone and not exactly. getting that validation. <laughs> I don't know if you mentioned it yet, but how old are you? I'm actually 29 right now. 29. I've been, okay. I will be turning 30 years old in about five or six months. Okay. So um, that so scares me a lot. So. <laughs> what scares that your age scares you? Yeah, turning okay. 30 and not you know having this financial instability and not being able to have savings and not being on my own because right now I'm just living with my family and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I haven't found a job on my degree. I have a business degree and I'm working in a like. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm working as a collection um, person, um, meaning that I collect this and working for an add-on company. But it's a part-time job, and um, I just can't afford myself. Like sometimes I just don't have enough money. Well, you're making yeah. afford paying them off. So that kind of scares me a lot. Sure. So even in talking to you in, in that last sentence, the thing you're going to need more than anything is the ability to just sit, and by that I don't mean literally only sit. But to sit with your feelings, to sit with some discomfort, because I get a feeling from you and how you talk is that you're just almost like you have this motor that's running. It's good to have energy, but it almost <laughs> feels like you need to you need to do something in a way to just get rid of the feeling or to not feel something or things are not OK. So I have to go ahead and change it right now. And because of that, it actually pushes you towards ways that actually make your life less stable. So it's interesting that you said you want more stability and you want to feel more in a way okay, but because you have a hard time just sitting with what's going on, it pushes you to be more impulsive and to make decisions that make your life more unstable. So that's something we're going to you know, have you work on is to be okay with even you're 29 and you're not married and you're not financially in a place you want to be. And trying to be okay with that. And accepting it doesn't mean that you're not going to do anything to make anything better, but that you can accept where you are today, that that is your reality today, and that's okay. And I think, like it is for many people, that's very hard for you. And so it's pushing you to do what you're doing and to compare yourself to others and feel bad about yourself and then feel this need to change something immediately, which might mean that you'll make bad decisions that don't have good long-term consequences just to make a change and to get rid of how you're feeling at that moment right now. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. So that's why I started my self-copy. I read a lot of books. Okay. I love books. <laughs> do you do meditation? Uh, meditation sometimes. Okay. I, I don't know why I cannot get used to do it at least every day. Yeah. I know they're really helpful for... Uh, I've done it before, and they're very helping with my overthinking. Mm-hmm. I no longer overthink, but um, there's well, part of me where I like to feel, I don't know, I just want to feel confident and feel relaxed, uh, you know, inside my heart. Yeah. I don't want to feel unsecure. Yeah, I mean, that piece, of, that peace <laughs> of mind really is the most important thing we can have in the peace within ourselves of feeling okay with ourselves, and it's much easier said than done, and it's not something that we can quickly change. And... I'm sure meditation is hard for you because it involves a lot of just sitting and what can feel like we're doing nothing, even though we're doing something. Exactly. And also sitting with our feelings and our thoughts, which I think might be hard for you, as many people struggle with. But I think for you, it's going to be hard to just sit with them. And so that's why I think it actually could be helpful for you because it's going to be tough. And that can make it even more helpful for you to get used to, okay, right now I don't feel good. And 
it could have this urge, you know what, if I go shop right now, I'll get some retail therapy, as they call it, and I'll feel better in the moment. But I know it's not the best thing for me. So meditation can help create this space between how we feel in the moment and then what we choose to do with that feeling, how we act by being more mindful. So we say, oh, you know what, I feel so sad. I feel lonely. And I'm having this urge that if I go to the mall or if I go online and shop, I'm going to feel better. But I know that, first of all, that's not going to solve my problem. And second of all, it's going to make me feel guilty and lead to more debt. So that's not the right solution, even though I understand that that's what I have the urge to do. But I can choose to do something different. So I think meditation can be helpful. It takes time for it to have an effect, but it might be something for you to consider. But really, we have to get to this feeling within yourself and you yourself mentioned it kind of this lonely feeling or not feeling good on your own from your own past can you understand where this feeling might have come from of not being enough or needing someone to validate you i i would say like um it might have started in my childhood like because part of me i was raised in iran obviously like 12 years of my life was in iran and um obviously in the school in iran you know you always have to you know be perfect uh-huh. always have to show that you're doing a great job, you're always perfect, and even with family, I believe that, like, for example, this is just an example, anytime I talk to my dad about a subject or something, he always wants me to be, you know, knowing everything, <laughs> always have knowledgeable about everything, you know, even things that I, doesn't interest me. Yeah. He always wants me to be perfect, so I feel like I always have to validate him, I always have to get validation that I'm doing this great or I'm not, you know. So I feel like when it comes to men, this pattern keeps continuing because yeah. any men I meet, they just there to tell me what to do and not to do. Yeah. And always fix me, always tell me where I'm wrong, where I'm right. So I just don't know how to solve this pattern. Yeah, and that's interesting in hearing you say that because you're saying you want the validation of a man, but what you got from your father... Uh, and then what you're getting from the men you tend to choose is that they make you feel bad about yourself. But because it feels comfortable, you're still drawn towards those kinds of men who might control you and tell you what you're doing wrong. Uh, but because it feels familiar, you go back there and you're trying to figure that out. And unfortunately, your father, what he was saying or that standard he was giving you was not realistic to know everything or to be the way he ha was and giving you this feeling of disappointment. So unfortunately, you felt disappointed in yourself but it was because he was holding you to a standard that was not realistic not human so it's as if he was being upset with you that you would go to sleep at night because you should be awake and keep reading when every human being needs to sleep he was putting this image for you or this expectation on you that you should be a certain way and so because you couldn't meet that unrealistic expectation you came to this conclusion that you were not good enough or something was not good about you unfortunately um, and those things can be hard to change. I know you said you're trying self-therapy, uh, which can be beneficial. And you mentioned the financial constraints, but I hope you can go to therapy to get deeper onto this issue. Yes, uh, I love to do that. Yeah. Unfortunately, like, I, I feel like right now my debts are coming first. So yeah, I, I understand. You know, happy, so. <laughs> another, another area for you to think about is things like self-love and or self-compassion. Um, there's a book by, I think it's Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F. That'd be funny if that's what I mentioned to you last time. I don't remember what the books were. <laughs> but that's a book to think about. It's on self-compassion because that seems to be missing for you, that feeling of love for yourself and compassion for yourself, which can lead to a feeling of being more okay. 
and even being okay to not feel okay, which it sounds funny to a lot of people that we think, well, if I feel bad, shouldn't I have to do something about it? But really a big sign of mental health is the ability to sit with our painful feelings and not feel like we immediately have to take them away or do something or erase them because that usually leads us, one, ignoring the feeling which gives us information and two, taking part in actions that aren't good for us long term. And so um, that, that might be something for you to also look into is how to increase that self-compassion, which like a lot of the things we've talked about today, takes time, but can be very meaningful if you make changes in that direction. And then did you mind spelling one last author name? I was just writing down the name of the book and then I forgot to write down the author name that you were mentioning. Oh, sure. It's Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F. Okay, I'll definitely take a look at that because I like, I also follow you on Facebook and I'll also check out the book. Oh, great. Okay. Too. Yeah, that was a book a year and maybe, I don't even know if I even posted the pictures back then because it was from a while ago, maybe a, almost two years ago. But yeah, that book, it's actually called Self-Compassion and it's by that author. So I'm sure you can find that and, and maybe that'll be helpful. But, you know, that it's that sense of inner peace that we all long for is very much missing in you. And I hope you can start to work towards that and that could affect how you feel. And keep in mind, you're not married today or you're not where you want to be today, but I hope you can accept where you are today and love yourself for where you are at. And you can work towards things and have goals, but to be accepting of where you are today at this moment. So I have one last question. I okay. know the time is running out. Um, I also started my uh, makeup school, um, the stuff that I always wanted to start. And I started paying for my tuition and was able to... Um, do very great with my um, tuition and stuff, but part of me that's lacking is that anytime I'm starting a goal, I do not finish it. Yeah. So I did finish like a school, the undergrad, because obviously over there are harder on me when it comes to university. Yeah. Well, you know what? This also relates to what we were talking about in a way. There could be a lot of reasons for that, but it, because anything you're going to do is going to get tough and challenging, and because you don't like that feeling when it's bad and stressful or you don't like something you might make the conclusion that you're doing the wrong thing when it's just that anything has pains and things you don't like but i get the sense that it's hard for you to tolerate negative feelings so you're doing something and you get stressed you don't like you say you know what i don't even like this that much anyway let me do something else and then you switch to the exciting yeah (laughs) and so you switch to something new that's exciting and it hasn't gone stressful yet until you face that challenge again so um Keep in mind that that's why I'm saying that tolerating the negative feelings can be good because you know what? I'm kind of stressed right now, but that's part of finishing my cosmetology school or makeup school, whatever it is. And that that's okay. I know that this is part of it. The stress doesn't mean it's bad. Or if I'm in a relationship and I feel a little bit sad, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong relationship. If they're making me feel that way all the time, yes. But part of relationships is it makes us feel down sometimes too. So that's I think to me that's the bigger picture. So I'd say if you've started something right now, make it as if it's not even a choice to finish it and just go to the end of it. And then once you finish it, if you decide you want to do something else, change then. But don't change until you finish this next thing in front of you right now and then make that decision. And do you suggest dating is a good thing after being single for eight months? Or do you, mm-hmm. you could take your time. I wouldn't rush into anything. I think the biggest thing for you is that you might rush into something. So even if you do date, Take it slow. Even tell a friend or someone to help you take it slow because you by yourself might go too fast emotionally. And because you want, for example, this pressure of getting married, you're going to say, okay, this is it. I'm going to make this the one rather than really seeing if it's there. So that's my concern for you is that you'll rush something 
and see something that might not even be there because one, you don't want to be alone. And two, you have this pressure of I have to get married soon, which you don't, but you have that pressure from yourself and maybe you get it other places too. So that would be my biggest concern for you is if you do date, take it slow. You see them today, don't see them for a week. Put some space at the beginning and getting to know them. Yeah, I am very bad with dating though. I don't know how to date. <laughs> okay, well, if that's the case, then give yourself some time. Don't rush. Um, I would focus on working on yourself a bit more too. But eventually you'll start. But like I said, the slow, I would say be slow. Be aware of when you meet someone. Are they like these men and like my father in some ways? Because you might be drawn to that kind of men. Um, try to learn from your past relationships, what you didn't like and what you did like. But like I said, again, taking it slow for me would be one big piece of advice for you. So being friends first would help a lot to get to know someone before. Yeah, being friends, just taking, however you want to define that, but just taking it slow overall, not seeing them too much at the beginning. Even being friends, well, we're friends, so we're going to spend four days in a row together. No, just see them, not so much communication, not so much seeing them. Put a little space into the communication and seeing them because of the way I'm seeing you. That would be something I would recommend. And then, is there a book that I can read? That one, I don't know. The taking it slow, I don't know. That, I mean, how about this? Read a book every time you're going to see them until you see them again. Just put a little space in between. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have to be a specific book, but just give yourself some time. I do want to give some other callers some time. Okay, so, but you're fine. Uh, uh, thank you so much for Nice talking to you. Have I'll a good day. I'll talk to you soon. All yeah. right, have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, going into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. back let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air hi Dr. hi thanks for holding thank you um so my question is about my one-year-old daughter mm-hmm. and um i want to return to work in uh, less than two weeks and um i wanted to know if i'm making uh, a right decision because mm-hmm. of her age um, so my plan is that she stays at home with a caregiver, and then um, I'm going to work part-time uh, in the beginning, two or three weeks. But part-time meaning uh, I'm going to be away from her for six hours. Mm-hmm. So my concern is that she is very attached to me, um, saying that I'm in the room with her. And if I want to leave the room, I have to uh, take her with me because she doesn't stay. She wants me to be... Uh, next to her. Mm-hmm. So uh, we start with a caregiver. She started uh, last week uh, for a few hours. But um, in the beginning, she was okay. But then um, the other day, she wouldn't uh, go to her. She wanted to be with me. And uh, even she tried, the caregiver tried to put her to sleep. But then she cried. She uh, she wanted me. And um yeah, so if you have questions for me. Well, yeah, this is, there's obviously a lot of questions and thoughts, and I, I do apologize because I know you were on hold a long time and we only have about seven minutes or so, and yeah. maybe we'll be able to talk another time some, some more about this because there's a lot to talk about. But it, it's tough, and I, I know you asked me if it's the right thing to do. Will it be easy on her? Can it have a negative effect? I mean, it won't be easy, and it could have some impact on her. Um I don't know, and we don't have to get into exactly the reasoning for you going back to work and how much the family needs that. These things are challenging questions, and I don't want to tell you you should do it one way or the other, but we want to be ready that it will be tough for her. Um, And maybe because we only have a few minutes, I also want to talk about how it's going to be tough for you and that you're going to have to make sure you deal with your feelings 
of sadness and hurt you might have, but also especially guilt, because that can affect the way you interact with her and interact with um, her when you come home or when you're saying bye to her, that might make it even harder on her. And so that's something for you to really be aware of your own feelings in this whole process. Because for example, if you're guilty about this and you come home and she's sad, if you can't tolerate that feeling, you might even minimize her sadness because you feel so guilty and you can't tolerate that, that you want to make the damage less. So you say, no, you're okay, or it's not that bad, or she's just being dramatic, let's say. I'm not saying you you don't strike me as having those reactions, but you might because it's too hard for you to tolerate your own feelings of guilt about this. And so, um, well, let me ask you about that just quickly. What is the reasoning for going back to work? Is it a financial um, consideration? Well, um, financially, um, it would be okay if I don't work, but um, because I thought um, maybe I can, you know, work some part-time and then maybe I can bring some work uh, home some days in a week, and I was, I, I'm not sure if I know the negative effect um, psychologically on her, um, so that's why I'm calling. If I know that it has a negative effect on her, um, I'm, I'm okay to stay at home with her for some time. But I don't know for how long um, I should stay yeah. uh, home with her. Well, yeah, the, that's a, a tough question to answer because there, I don't think of it as one time. And some kids might respond differently than other kids. But probably we should anticipate it's going to be a negative impact in that she is at, you know, you mentioned she's attached to you, which actually is a good thing because at one year of age, they should feel attached to their, especially primary caregiver. And so in some ways you're ripping at that attachment, not completely, but we have to be ready that that has an effect and she won't and shouldn't feel the same way with this caregiver you brought or are bringing into the home. We wouldn't expect that she might get more comfortable with her, but that this can have a negative impact on how she feels safe with you or the trust that she has and it doesn't mean she will necessarily have trust issues but it can be connected to that or related to that and so even if you want to give it a try i would see how it's going we know it's not going to be easy for her um but i would think ideally waiting a little bit more will be good maybe even like a few more months till she has more of a feeling of object permanence of knowing you're still exist even when you're gone might not be bad but i personally think if you're going back to work just to go back and there isn't really a strong financial pressure then maybe staying at home is better now also i say that while keeping in mind that you have to see how you're doing sometimes parents if they don't go to work um, they might start to feel resentful even towards the kid or feel stressed about not doing anything and that can affect them and how they are. So that's why it also is a personal decision that you have to see how are you doing with the whole situation. Yeah. No, if, I'm, if I know that I'm making the right decision for her, I would be okay to stay at home with her. Okay. I mean, I don't want to make you feel that if you leave, you're really hurting her in a horrible way and that her life will never be the same or it's some really deep permanent damage that will be impossible to be undone, but it could have a negative impact. And it's I, I keep it vague and unclear because I can't say for sure and I don't want to tell you that because I don't know. Um, but if, if I were you or if I could see what you're telling me that financially things are okay, you feel all right, I would say waiting a few more months would probably be better. It'll always be hard whenever you do go to work. Um, 
I also want you to think about how you're feeling. And sometimes some parents, or especially moms, can feel very confined in the home if they don't. And especially if they were used to working and losing that, they can lose a part of their identity and who they are. So those are very personal questions for you to also reflect on about what feels right to you. Um, okay. And uh, I know that there is, um, you said that there is no number, but um, do, do you know when they start to learn about object permanence and the few months that you said, is it 18 months? Sometimes I've seen long? 18, you know, I'll be honest, I'm even going to look it up for you right now because I don't know if there's the exact, and you know, with all of these things, we always want to um, think about it more of a range rather than it's exactly going to be at a certain time because some parts of object permanence start even before a year of age. But until they get a little bit older, it can feel different. So I, I think it's less about just the object permanent side, because I don't want to make that the deciding factor. But giving her a little bit more time, sometimes some theorists will say zero years to 14 months is when trust is important. Some will say 12 months. And so it could be a feeling of that trust that might be a little bit harder. So if she's 12 months old, I would say another four months or so wait till she's 16 months but again it's very personal because if you don't feel good if you don't feel right that could affect how you are as a mom with her and that's why these things there isn't to me a blanket rule that no mom should go back to work or no dad should go back to work because if you're going to be frustrated at home and more resentful and then take that out on her that's worse than maybe if you leave the home for a few hours and you come home in a different way so that part of it is very personal um clearly and how you're even talking about her and i hear it in your voice there's so much care you have for her and she'll she'll know that and feel that and just see make a decision that feels right with you and her dad and i would say go from there and, and we'll see how she's doing okay yeah. all right thank you very sorry much sorry that we didn't have a lot of time but thanks for your call no, that's okay okay have a much. great day take okay. care you too goodbye all right thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to farhuda here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fatty delacqui have a wonderful day mm -hmm.